As you know, as part of our Kairos Young Adults Retreat, we swam with the whale sharks. Prior to going out by boat and swimming with them, all of us tourists were given a brief five-minute orientation. Someone in a very monotonous voice gave us the simple rules that would define our encounter with them. I think she gives this orientation 30 to 40 times a day. Every one of us could at least memorize the lines as we heard it six to seven times waiting for our turn to go out by boat. Do not touch the whale sharks. Stay four meters away from the whale sharks. Do not use flash photography. Failure to follow the rules will subject you to six to 12 months of imprisonment. Does everyone understand? Everyone says yes. In fact, we had memorized her orientation. We wondered why they didn't simply film it and just show it over and over. But we would remind each other a bit sarcastically, remember the rules. Do not touch the whale shark. Stay four meters away. Do not use flash photography. Failure to do so will subject you to six to 12 months of imprisonment. We figure when you hear the announcement over and over, you will begin to internalize it. There is a reason why it is short, it is sweet, you will remember it. And so we went out by boat and got into the area with the whale sharks, and everyone went into the water. As I went into the water, I saw that everyone was following the rule except someone from another boat. That someone from another boat began to swim towards the shark as if to chase it. I saw it, and I wondered, what was he going to do, give it a hug? Um, all the boatmen who were there kept yelling for him, Sir, come back, come back. You cannot be that close. Get back. Stay away from the shark. They shouted to him, Sir, do you understand? And he said, Yes. But he still continued to swim towards it. With the desperate pleas of the boatmen unanswered, in my heart I was thinking, I hope the shark bites his hand off to teach him a lesson, to show him what happens when you do not follow the rules. I bet you that if just one tourist had his hand bitten off by the whale shark, everyone would surely stay four meters away. But I realize since whale sharks only eat plankton and not people, no one is really scared of them. Perhaps that is the problem. No one is scared, and so many of them do not obey the rules. In contrast, perhaps if you were swimming, perhaps with the great white shark, and they told you, stay in the cage, I don't think, I bet you no one would not follow the rule to stay in the cage. No one in their right mind would venture out of the steel cage and say, you know what, I think I want a closer encounter. Because you know what the whale shark can do, and you know what the great white shark can do. And so why do we act differently? We follow some rules, but we don't follow others. I think it's because we all risk assess whether it is to our benefit to follow the rules or not, to comply, whether we can get away with it or not. And if we can get away with it after we've done our risk assessment, then it's fine. If I were to take a survey of how many text and drive, I think the vast majority of us would have to raise our hands. And whether you know it or not, the first fine for being caught, or the, the fine for being caught the first time, is 5,000 pesos. It's a large sum of money. But many of us have done our risk assessment. We say it is a large sum of money, but we'll take the risk. We'll take the risk that the cop doesn't see us texting with our heavy tint. And if we get caught, it's, it's only money. I bet you if they change the law, that the first time you're caught texting and driving, they will shoot you to death. I bet you no one would take the chance. We 
we all risk assess whether we want to comply or follow with certain rules. So it is in our spiritual lives. We do the very same thing. We risk assess whether we need to change an aspect of our lives to conform with God's standards. But most of us think that because God is so good and He's so loving, which He is, and because God is so patient, it is okay for us not to listen and change our ways. We've done the risk assessment, and it is of low risk for us if we do not change, and therefore many of us do not. To change this notion, this is a wrong notion, we continue our study this morning in the book of Zephaniah. We will see how God will remind the people of Jerusalem who had this very same attitude, and He will remind them of who He is and how He judges those who do not change in their life. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Zephaniah chapter 3 as we exposit verses 1 to 8. Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 1 to 8 as we draw out some principles to challenge us to change if there are areas in our life that demand change, that do not conform with God's standards. The book of Zephaniah chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Look with me. Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. Now, what city is Zephaniah talking about? If you look further in the chapter, you will find out from the context that this is in reference to the city of Jerusalem. Zephaniah begins drawing his attention back from the judgments against the other nations that surround Judah, which we talked about last week, now specifically back to Judah and specifically against the city of Jerusalem. Now, in verses 1 to 5, the prophet announces the reasons of why God's judgment was upon this city. You see, God always has a reason for His judgments. God's judgments are not haphazards. God's discipline are not on a whim. There's always a reason why He judges fairly. Now, what characterizes this city that would demand God's judgments? Verse 1. They were rebellious. They were polluted. They were an oppressing city. In their rebellious ways, the city of Jerusalem and the people living in it refused to come under the authority of God and His Word. In their polluted and defiled state, they were obviously sinful in the practices within the city. In their oppressing manner, they took advantage of each other Everyone did what was right in their own eyes for their own dishonest gain. It was a polluted city. There was no rule of law. And this supposed capital city of God's chosen people, where His holy temple stood, was no different from the cities of today and no different from the cities of the ancient Near East. This was a city that did not conform to God's standards and made no efforts to change. And that is why the Bible tells us they are being condemned. It was not as if the prophets did not call them to change, did not call their attention to their deficiencies. In fact, the very prophet who writes this book had been doing just that, and yet they did not heed the prophet's calls, and they did not do anything. They knew what God wanted them to do, and yet they didn't care to change their ways. What exhibited or what came out of the city of Jerusalem, was something we call the action of an action. They resolved to do nothing. The action of an action 
is a resolution to do nothing in spite of what you have heard or what you have read. That is what characterized the city of Jerusalem. In many ways, we are similar to the people of Jerusalem at that time. We are no different. We are to be different, but we are not. We as Christians are no better than non-Christians in our actions, in our words, in our deeds, in our thoughts, in our sinful ways. We are fallen people. We are sinners, yes. But we are to be different. Because we have Jesus Christ in our life. And Jesus Christ, through His shed blood, was the propitiation for our sin. He allows us to change, to no longer conform to the world, but to conform to Jesus Christ. And that is why the world expects us to be different. The world expects us to change. The visual transformation of our lives, the visual change in our lives is a draw for other people to come and experience Christ. A change that is marked with a difference from the world. And yet if there is no change, there is no difference. And if there is no difference, no one will care to look for why they should have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible tells us if there isn't a change from our sinful ways, then the Bible says He will discipline You see, God expected the people of Jerusalem, just as he expects us, to be the light of the world, to be different, to not be like all the other pagan cities of the world in how they are to live. And yet, in their rebellion, in their polluted state, in their oppression, they were no different. You see, the nation of Israel, especially through the capital, was to draw the pagan world to come to see that the living God, Yahweh, was different, was gracious, and demanded justice and holiness, there was supposed to be a difference. And because they were not different, they came under God's discipline. There are two ways in which the people of Jerusalem did not change. One is in an attitude, and the other is in an action. Let's take a look at the action first, verse 2. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. The first action of an action exhibited by the people living in Jerusalem to show that they did not change was that, number one, they ignored God's explicit word. They ignored it. I want you to look at all the phrases in verse 2 with the words, has not There are four of them. Has not, has not, has not, has not. They have not obeyed. They have not corrected their ways. They have not trusted in the Lord. They have not drawn near. Basically, the people of Jerusalem had done nothing. They had not moved an inch. They were unresponsive. They were unteachable. They simply ignored what God pleaded with them to do. They weighed the risk factors of obeying or not obeying, of complying or not complying. And they decided they'll simply ignore God's word. That is a dangerous game to play. The Bible tells us, verse 2, they did not trust God. Now you may ask, what does trust have to do with change? What is the correlation? You see, if you do not trust God, you will not obey. If you do not trust you will ignore. For example, when I give you a biblical principle on a Sunday morning, 
for how we are to live from what the scriptures teach. You have a choice whether to comply or not. But we often choose not to comply or to change because we simply don't trust. We don't trust God. We don't fully trust his word, although we would never admit that. We don't believe that God's promises will come true. We don't really believe that God will really punish and discipline. We don't believe that if I give up a certain thing in my life, that somehow God will make it up to me. And so I won't change. I'm skeptical because I do not trust God's word as it relates to heavenly rewards or his promises in heaven. Does that sound like you? Because for the people of Jerusalem, they did not trust. That is why they did not obey and they ignored the word of God. Look at the end of verse 3. It also says of them, the people of Jerusalem did not draw near to her God. When they willfully ignore God, it is because they did not draw near to him. You see, my friends, when you are close to someone, when you want to be close to someone, we change our ways to either get their attention or that when we are in fellowship with them, we change our ways so that we can please them, so that they'll like us. An obvious example of this principle uh, can be found when you see teenage boys One day, teenage boys hate all girls. They ignore them like the plague. They avoid them like the plague, as if they have cooties or some real disease or germs. One day, it is not cool to like girls, and yet something happens. Immediately the next day, they discover girls. They've always been there, but now they've discovered them. How do you know that? Overnight, they begin to buy new clothes. They actually take baths, they comb their hair, they shave, they put on cologne so that they can get a girl to like them. The motivation for that change is the desire to be with someone of the opposite gender. So it is in the Christian life. If we draw near to God with a deep desire to be intimate with Him, We will want to change our lives because we don't want the one we lovingly are in relationship with to be disappointed in our words and in our actions. Does that make sense? If we are in intimate fellowship with Jesus, if we draw near to Him, then we will change our ways so that God will not be disappointed in the way we live, in our actions and in our words. Men and women, if you draw near to God, if you initiate to be an intimate relationship, and when you love Jesus in the most intimate of ways, naturally you will want to change so that you will please him with your life, especially one who has died in our place. Ignoring God's explicit word, unfortunately, marked the people of the city of Jerusalem. In verse 3 and 4, we see the attitude, including verse 5. Look with me. Her princes in her midst are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. Her prophets are insolent, treacherous people. Her priests have polluted the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. Here, Zephaniah condemns the ruling class and the religious class of Jerusalem. Four groups that should have been leading the people towards God. These were the moral 
authority of the city. And yet instead of leading them to God, they were leading them away from God. The first group from the ruling class were the princes. They were in charge of running the city, but instead of running the city well and fairly, they were like hungry lions, lording their rule over everyone and leading for their own gain. The second group from the ruling class were the judges. These judges, are, all judges, are supposed to be impartial and fair. But these judges were corrupt. They didn't simply exhibit, you know, under the table, wink, wink, quid pro quo types of corruption. They were blatantly obvious in their corruption, the Bible says. They were robbing the people. In fact, the people had nothing. They were like wolves who leave nothing for the people the next day. This is not describing the Philippines. This is describing the holy city of Jerusalem where God's holy temple was. The third group or the first group of the religious class were the prophets. The prophets were to be different. They were to call people towards righteousness. And yet the Bible tells us what defined the prophets in Jerusalem were that they were insolent and treacherous people. They were evil people. They were bad people serving for their own gain. The fourth group condemned, the second of the religious class, were the priests. And the priests were to lead the people in worship. And yet instead they corrupted that which was the most sacred. They twisted God's word for their own selfish purpose and their own selfish wealth. And they took God's laws and they polluted it. No wonder the people never change when those at the top were not changing as well. You see, I've said it many times, change always comes from the top down. It doesn't work from the bottom up. And that applies in our church and that applies in our families. Change must come from the leaders of this church so that it will trickle down to the congregation even in the families, change must come from the grandparents. Change must come from the parents. Your children are watching how you treat God, how you respond to Him. What is your view of church? What is your view of your relationship with God? And it is that relationship that trickles down to the next generations. Change always begins at the top. Verse 5. The Lord is righteous in her midst. He will do no unrighteousness. Every morning he brings his justice to light. He never fails, but the unjust know no shame. In contrast to these corrupt political and religious leaders of Jerusalem, God tells us that his very character is that which is just. His very character compels him to do what is right. And every day evidences his pure justice. If you ever believe that God is unjust in some form or some manner, understand the characteristic of who God is. God cannot do anything that is unjust. So all of his actions, all of what he allows to happen in your life is just. And if you come with that notion, you realize just how amazing God is. God is consistent in his righteous ways. He cannot sin. He cannot be unfair. And this is the God we worship. The Bible says he never fails us. But I want you to notice the last phrase there in verse 5. The last phrase. But the unjust know no shame. In contrast to righteous God, 
the unjust knows no shame. You see, there was no change in the lives of the people of Jerusalem because, number two, they were shameless in their ways. The first was an action. They ignored the Word of God. The second is an attitude. They were shameless. When there is no guilt and there is no conscience affected or where there is no shame in our actions, then we will do whatever we want. I've seen it with my own eyes where men and women do things that I could never do, but they do it without batting an eye. They will steal. They will lie right to your face without batting an eye. It doesn't bother them when they do wrong because they are now immune from it. When you can sin without being affected, may that be a warning sign to you that you have resolved down the path towards action of an action. When the fear of God is no longer in your life, when there is no fear or shame to do wrong, then you need to be careful because that is when your heart becomes hardened. And my friends, my plea to you is to guard your heart. Do not wait until your heart is so hard that it can no longer be softened. You know, when you look at the Scriptures, and you look at the men and women who are talked about in the Scriptures, whose hearts have been hardened, you'll find in the majority context of men and women whose hearts have been hardened, it is very difficult, nearly impossible, for them to soften their hearts again. And that's why the Bible tells us, guard our hearts. Keep it soft. Keep it malleable. Do not allow slippage in your character that will begin you down the road of hardening your heart. Be repulsed by sin. Do not accept sin. Parents, I speak a word to you. Be careful about slippage in the character that you model to your children and be careful to allow slippage, not to allow slippage in the character of your children. Because when you allow them to get away with sin, do not be surprised that when they get older, they sin. And you wonder, why in the world would you do that? It's because they got away with the small things that they begin to do the big things. In 1987, Harvard professors James Wilson and Richard Herrnstein came to a similar conclusion in their book, Crime and Human Nature, a defining work as it relates to criminology. And here in this book, Crime and Human Nature, they determined that the cause of crime is a lack of proper moral training among young people during the morally formative years. During the morally formative years of a child's life, if they don't receive proper moral training, they often have a higher propensity to sin and to do crime. Now you may wonder, when is this morally formative years? According to their study, it is between the ages of one and six. One and six. Imagine that. How many of you have small children, and when you see a four-year-old or five-year-old tell a little white lie or they take something that's not theirs, we say, it's okay. I'll teach them when they get older. They're only four. You are allowing their character to slip. It is in those morally formative years that you should not let them get away. Now, why? 
Because as you know with children, they think in black and white. What is right is right, what is wrong and wrong. And sometimes we chide them and we tell our teenagers, don't be so square, especially in this Filipino culture. To survive in the business world, you must not think in black and white, you must think in gray. You are doing them a disservice if you teach them that. Because the Word of God is black and white in many ways. It is biblical when a little child thinks in black and white. What is right is right. What is wrong is wrong. It is us who make what God says is black and white, and it is us who makes it gray. Be warned. When we become shameless in our sin, we go down the road of having our hearts hardened. And that is why we do not change. But when you don't change or don't see the need to change, we need to be reminded of who God is and what he will do. And that is exactly what he does in verses 6 to 8. Look at what he reminds the people of Jerusalem about who he is. The first reminder, verse 6. I have cut off the nations. Their fortresses are devastated. I have made their streets desolate with none passing by. Their cities are destroyed. There is no one, no inhabitant. As a reminder, God says, look what I've done. I am a destroyer of nations. The Lord is saying, I'm not someone you mess with. I'm not someone you take for granted. I'm not someone you just simply push away. Look what I've done to previous nations who do not change. You must take me seriously. And that's number one, the first reminder. God shouldn't, excuse me, God should be taken seriously. And the people of Judah didn't need to look far. They just simply looked to their northern neighbors, the ten northern tribes who were defeated by the Assyrians in 722. And God had sent prophet after prophet to the northern tribes of Israel to literally beg them to change their ways so that they could avoid discipline and punishment. But they did not heed the prophet's calls. And so God wanted them to know very clearly he is not someone to be trifled with, not someone to be messed with. He should be taken seriously. Do not underestimate what God can do. Do not think of him as that docile whale shark. He is the great white. Just because he does not bite you now, just because he doesn't discipline you now, doesn't mean he cannot and won't do it. That is not a message our generation wants to hear today. And yet it is a message we need to hear, balanced with grace and love and mercy. Our God needs to be taken seriously. He says, I cut off nations. One of my childhood friends uh, is a wonderful surgeon in the U.S. If you were to meet her, you will find one thing that is obvious when you meet her. You will find out that she is pretty short. She stands barely four foot ten, maybe heels four foot eleven, uh, and she's a surgeon. Uh, joking with her once, I asked her, when your patients come to see you or you go to your patient's room, do they really think you're a doctor because of how short you are? 
she says, Steve, you know what? I have gotten some really unique experiences when I often walk into a patient's room and I announce to them that I'm going to be their surgeon, uh, some of them will ask again, are you really the surgeon? In fact, she told me some of them will make fun of her and they will not show her any respect. So I asked her, what do you do to, with people who, who don't respect you and make fun of you? She tells me, whenever people disrespect me or literally look down on me, I tell them, in a few hours, my little hands will be inside of your body, and I can do whatever I want to do. Do you really want to make me your friend or your enemy? And then I walk away. I want them to think. Actually, as an aside, because of her size and her smaller hands, she's one of the most skilled surgeons. But I love that line. She says, I can do whatever I want to with you, do you want to make me your friend or your foe? I think that's something we better ask ourselves in our relationship with God. Since he can do whatever he wants to do with our lives, and that is what we call risk assessment, since he can do whatever he wants to do with our lives, we better ask ourselves the question, do we want him as a friend as he invites us to be his friend, or do we want him to be our enemy and experience the wrath of God? I hope you're smart enough to do your own risk assessment and realize it is better to have God as a friend than as a foe. So when you don't care to change your ways, to live out transformed lives, you better think about your relationship with God. He can, he's either your friend or he is your foe. Because God says very clearly, I cannot tolerate sin. I will have nothing to do with it. The second reminder of who God is and what he does is found in verse 7. Look with me. I said, surely you will fear me. You will receive instruction so that her dwelling would not be cut off despite everything for which I punished her. But they rose early and corrupted all their deeds. God continues in verse 7 and indicates he really thought that the people of Judah would heed his warnings. Why? Look at verse 7. So that her dwellings would not be cut off, so that they would not be punished and they would not be disciplined. You see, God thought it's so obvious to most normal people. I give you a warning. It is for your good and therefore you should change. What they had forgotten, but God reminded them again in verse 7, is that number 2, God's warnings are for our good. God's warnings are for our good. The transformative change they were to do or go through was for their good. But the, despite God's constant reminders that it was for their good to avoid destruction, they continued to ignore God. They didn't realize that God's call for them to change was for their benefit. And we often forget that, that a God who would love us so deeply that he would send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on our behalf, why in the world would he ever want any ill will towards us? And therefore, when he gives us principles by which we are to live by, it is for our benefit, it is for our good. Don't forget that. God's warnings are for our good. You know, every so often, I'm sure you would read in the newspaper or watch in the news about very dumb people who go to the zoo and jump into the lion pen or try to hug a gorilla and jump there or, 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 or go in with the bear. 
And so unfortunately, what has to happen, if you read these news stories, is that the zookeeper sometimes has to kill the animals to protect the life of this idiot. Oh, you can see how I feel about these people. <laughs> or they have to risk their lives as zookeepers to try to save these people. You know, what gets me very angry is that when I read the follow-up to this story, these people who have been saved after they've jumped into the lion pen or whatever other pen, is then they sue the zoo. Often happens in America. What do they sue the zoo about? They sue the zoo because the barriers were not high enough that they were able to climb over it. They sue the zoo because their protective barriers were not complex enough that they were able to find a way to get in. It is when I read those stories that I become very unpastorly and I wish the animals had eaten them. You see, when they see the barriers at the zoo, instead of thinking this is a warning to keep us away for our protection, they think, wow, this is a challenge. Let me see if I can climb over it. Let me see if I can skirt the defenses of the zoo so that I can be one with the animal and have a great encounter. I want to yell at these people. The point of the barrier is not to take away your fun. It is to protect you. So if you climb over the barrier to try to get in, then the zoo should let you experience that animal encounter. And we, we, we read stories like that and we say, we'll, we're not dumb enough to do that. We don't, we're not dumb enough to think like that. Well, think again. In the same way, we have the very same reaction. God gives us a warning. He gives us a protective boundary. And instead of saying, thank you, Lord, for protecting me and keeping me out of trouble, what do we think? We think, how can I breach this barrier? How can I step over the protective custody line that God has given us? Because in our minds, God somehow draws out these boundaries in our lives because He is a cosmic killjoy and He wants to suck out all the joy from my life. And God just simply wants to make my life miserable. And that is how a lot of Christians think. We have forgotten that when God sets forth His protective boundaries in how we are to live, it is because He loves us dearly. He wants to protect us. He wants to keep us out of trouble. Because His warnings are for our good. If you think that stepping outside of God's protective boundary is an adventure, you are as dumb as the one who jumped in to a zoo pen. And that's the truth. God's warnings are for our good. Let us remember that. If we're living inside the protective care of our Lord, then we are in the very safest of places. And it is in the protective care of God that we can experience true joy. It is when we are outside the protective will of God that we should run very scared. The last verse, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. If you're wondering how many more weeks will the pastor yell at us, 
This is the end of the judgment portion of this book. This is the last verse of the judgment portion of the book of Zephaniah. It gets a bit easier to swallow. But here in this last verse of the judgment portion, Zephaniah again reminds the readers, reminds us of God's universal judgment on the day of the great day of the Lord on all those who are wicked. And this will happen during the great tribulation where he gathers the nation to pour out his wrath. But until that time, you and I have time to change, to repent, to change our ways. God is still patient with us, but do not wait. The day is coming, verse 8. Do not wait. Do not ignore what God has challenged us to do. Do not be shameless in your sin and in your actions. Remember that God should be taken seriously and that His warnings are for our good. Do not get caught up in the action of inaction. Do not resolve to do nothing. Today is the day of reckoning. Today is the day of change. Because the day is coming when our Lord will return, and He will return for an accounting of our lives. He will come as judge. He will come as the punisher of the evil. So you've got to make a choice. You've got to make a risk assessment choice. Until that time when he calls our life to an account, how do we live our lives? Do you want him as a friend or do you want him as a foe? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a wake-up call even to me. I pray this morning that your word would call us again to attention, that we are to be different from this world. We are to change, to live transformed lives. And it is the transformation of our lives that will show forth the Lord Jesus to the world. I pray this morning that each man and each woman, each young man, each young woman who has heard the word of the Lord will leave here very different from how they have stepped in. They will resolve to change instead of resolve to ignore and to be shameless in their sin. May each man and each woman here continue to cultivate a heart that is soft and tender, malleable, to be formed in your image to be more Christ-like. And I pray that hearts would be ready to heed your call and to appreciate what a joyful life it is to live under your care. Change us, O Lord. Change us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.